Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right, we're back. Um, we've been off for a week or so and uh, it's episode 45 and I have Brandy Walker with me. I've seen her before if you've listened to the podcast last time she came on and talked about grief. Um, and today we're going to talk about living with an alcoholic and what that's like and some of the consequences of that, some of the struggles with that. I want to say up front, you know, if you're if you're somebody who struggles with alcoholism or addiction, our goal is not to shame you uh, and to bash you, but to talk more today about what <clears throat> what it's like for the person who is not struggling with addiction to support, to live through someone battling um, the sin or this disease or however you want to label it. Um, so I'll talk a little bit up, up front just, you know, that we recognize, me and Brandy and, and those of us who work in this field, that, you know, the addiction is just a symptom of a problem. And so that doesn't identify, you know, identify the person. It doesn't uh, define them. Um, you put a label on someone and say, you're an alcoholic. It's like, no, you struggle with alcoholism. You And so that allows us to externalize that and say, okay, well, we're battling alcoholism or we're battling addiction or we're battling shame or whatever the thing is. It's not your identity. And so we just want to say that up front. So that if somebody's listening to this, that they don't hear you're a horrible person, you know, you should feel bad about yourself. Look at what all you've done. While at the same time, we hope that people do see what it's like for the people around them because I think a lot of times people minimize their own brokenness and their own consequences um, to keep the addiction going, and that's a problem. I'm sure we'll talk about that some. So anyway, um, that's what I wanted to say to start off with. So Brandy, tell us a little bit about you, um, your story, just in case people didn't hear you on the last episode, and what brought you to talk about living with an alcoholic today. Okay. Well, hello. And I'm glad that you said what you said, because it's definitely not, definitely don't want to make anyone feel bad about their own struggle. Um, But let's see. So my story, um, I became a counselor 11 years ago, and I took the long route. So meaning um, when I was in high school, I thought that I wanted to become a psychologist and then I decided I didn't want to go to college. So I worked for a while and then decided, wait a minute, I don't think this is going to work. I mean, did any of us really <laughs> want to go to college? <laughs> and so I finally decided to um, go to school, change my major multiple times um, between teaching, business, counseling, business. Couldn't land on what I actually wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I went to school at night all but two semesters. So I worked full time, went to school. So it took me eight years to get my bachelor's. Mm. So I finally said, okay, you can't switch. You have to decide. So I'm a psychologist, but I said, okay, counseling. 
same field, but I can't go to school too much longer because mm-hmm. I'd been in for so long. And so kind of just pursued my master's and then went straight into um, inpatient psych and then inpatient psych and addiction and then the private sector. Right. So, um, yeah, I was straight out of school. I was the only LPC in the hospital and I was shown around and the next day they said, go lead group. <laughs> Mm. I had no clue what I was doing. Deer and and um, so I spent <clears throat> a year, like, no curriculum, no materials, no nothing, and straight out of school. And I was like, what did I get myself into? So I spent, when I wasn't doing groups or some kind of individual counseling or case management, I wrote material to actually have to present yeah. and teach people. And so that was kind of my beginning. And now I'm here. Yeah. And you've been with us for what? <laughs> two years in July. Yeah. Yeah. So some two so years, a little, a little over, over two years. years. It's awesome. Yes. yes. Yeah. And you've done a phenomenal, uh, you know, job here and your, your clients love you and, you know, I'm proud of you and love all the things you're doing and, um, the grief work. And we're going to get more into that. And we got into that a little bit. We'll have you back to talk about the new stuff we're working on. Um, so tell me why, tell me your own experience with, the uh, living with alcoholic and, and how that brought you to want to talk about it. Well, so um, the person that um, I fell in love with and dated and was with for 20 years that I talked about last time on the grief podcast was an alcoholic. Um, Now, he didn't start out as an alcoholic when we met. We were 22 and 23, so he was not an alcoholic at that point. But over time, he became an alcoholic and... um, I chose to stay with him through that, and it's just, there's just a lot of things that happen in a person's life when they, you don't really know what you're signing up for Mm -hmm. until you're in it, and you don't really know what you're going to do or how you're going to handle a situation until you're in it, and it just, it just kind of feels like something that needs to be talked about. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of talking and a lot of groups for addicts and alcoholics and a lot of education on what that is and what they go through but like you mentioned in the beginning the families and the loved ones just kind of don't get a lot of attention or time to talk about yeah what they experience and a lot of times they just kind of walk through life kind of feeling maybe alone mm-hmm. and like they have no one to tell their story to because they might be judged. Um, so yeah, I just, it was really something God put on my heart to talk about. Yeah. Cause like I told you right before we started, this isn't something I talk about with people, Yeah, <laughs> you know, years and years ago I did. But once I decided I'm staying in this, I'm choosing to stay with someone who has this struggle. I can't keep telling people, the same problem because I'm not, this is my choice, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So yeah. I just stopped talking about it. Right. It was just between me and him, me and God, and me and my counselor. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and the feedback you get from people is not always helpful. And usually, right. Usually not helpful. Right. You know, the, of course, they're, they are looking at it from the outside, and their, their support or their um, perspective is, 
you need to do what's best for you. You need to leave the situation. This is not good. And when you decide, well, I'm not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then it's kind of like you're, you're like, well, I'm just not going to talk about that much anymore. Yeah. So that's kind (laughs) of what brought me to want to talk about it, to give, to let people know that they have a voice and that what they think and what they're going through and what they're feeling, it matters. Yeah, that's good. So what are some things that um, you'd like listeners to hear, kind of goals for today? Well, so one thing that, a few things that come to mind is, um, I think, I think there are a lot of people who go through at some point in a relationship with someone that is using alcohol or, or drugs of enabling. A lot of times you don't know you're doing that and your intent isn't to help them continue. I think that's just something that happens sometimes mm-hmm. in the beginning because you don't know what to do. Yeah. And your love for this person wants to help them. And then also I want to speak about um, how their their struggle has absolutely nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of times I did. Um, for a while it was like, why can you, why are you doing this? Why is being with me not enough? Why is everything, we have a good life? You know, why are you, just kind of those things that make you question, what have I done that's make, making them choose to do this? Or mm. when it really, it just has nothing to do with you. Right. Well, especially if you've, I mean, kind of putting those together, if you've enabled a little bit, Mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you feel responsible for their behavior. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk to me, give me some example or, or maybe just start with telling me your story about uh, what, it, what y'all's story is. And then maybe mm-hmm. we'll pick, pick it through on some of the points that, okay. That sound good. So, um, we met when he was 22, I was 23 and, um, so babies. Yes, we were babies <laughs> yeah. and he, he had been in the Navy for four years and he had just come home. And, um, like he went to the net, joined the Navy the day he turned 18. Hmm. And so he came home, um, and that's when I met him. And, um, that's where he learned a lot of his drinking habits. Right. <laughs> but, um, Oh, sorry. He, um, he got saved when he came home. He had not known Jesus before that. And he came to know Christ and he was extremely passionate and gung ho. And so, you know, I was very drawn to that, and we began dating, and he struck. He struggled then with saying no to alcohol, but he, I guess, being newly saved. White knuckled it? Yes. Yeah. And so then over the years, um, it just progressed. Um, you know, it started off being on weekends at parties, football games, going out with his buddies, things like that. And then, um, and there were some years we lived apart and were not together because he moved away for a while and we didn't maintain a long distance relationship. But then he returned and um, I didn't actually recognize that he was an alcoholic until we lived together in mm-hmm. 2011. Well, I think a lot of people socially drink quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, at football games, at events, mm-hmm. at parties for cookouts while we're grilling steaks, 
mm-hmm. for the, and there's like a lot of those things. Right. <clears throat> so it's like four or five times a week, you're having two or three glasses of whiskey or six beers each time. Mm-hmm. But that's such norm, normative behavior and culture that we don't see it as alcoholism. Right. Or alcohol <clears throat> abuse. Right. And so whether it's not full-blown addiction, it's you're definitely abusing the substance if you're using it that much. Right. And and so we kind of get roped into going, oh, well, that's just what everybody does. So mm-hmm. we don't even see it. We don't start clinically diagnosing it as something. Right. And I can't, well, and I came Is from that a accurate? family that, sure, I yeah. think so. None of us drank. And I probably didn't, I probably didn't have my first drink till well into my 20s. Mm-hmm. I was just not, and don't do it regularly. It's just not something and so it wasn't that I I didn't like how much it was happening but I didn't view it as a problem yeah until we we decided to move in together and um and I began to notice it was every night if he was off on the weekends it started at 10 a.m I mean it was there was no time when, well, okay, let me back up. It started off with, it was at least one drink a night. And then it progressed over the years to a bottle a night. And then the bottles got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it progressed to, I'd get up and he'd already be drinking. You know, I was a late sleeper. He was the early riser. I'd get up and there was already, he was already drinking. It would be hidden in his car. He'd drink on the way to work, and when he got done with work, he didn't drink at work that I am aware of, but there is a possibility that mm. that happened towards the end. <laughs> um, and after he passed away, I found bottles hidden everywhere. Mm. I would pour them out when he'd go to sleep. It got to that point, you know, the right. point that I would pour them out. I would, um, which towards the end of his life he also struggled with depression and um was very significantly depressed when he passed away and had not worked in four months and i wouldn't give him money to he had no money and i would not buy it for him so he Mm. would find other people to buy it for him right so i mean it became one of these things that was when alcohol is a depressant social yes and gradually turned into there was never a time he wasn't drinking unless he decided to get clean. And then he'd detox at home. He would refuse to go get help. And mm. he would go through that on his own at home with me checking on him because I would go to work. <laughs> and he yeah. would stay home and do that. And in, over the years, he detoxed and tried to stay clean probably five or six times and always relapsed and the relapses were always worse mm-hmm. and he would go he would begin drinking more and more when he would go back to it. why do you think that didn't work staying staying sober, sober the detoxes because he, he he had underlying ah. hurt he had extreme hurt in his life a lot of trauma um his father abandoned him he was to some degree, his mother abandoned him. He kind of grew up on his own. Um, and he he never got over the wound of his father mm-hmm. leaving him. And he refused counseling. He, um, he believed in it for other people, but not for him. 
and um, he he just he wouldn't deal with the root of the issues. Yeah. And do you think the places he went were, uh, you know, attacking the root issues? The places he went, like the mean? detox, like if he if he went to detox, if he was, is that just behavior modification? I mean, that's what it seems like. Um, like stopping drinking, for example, and getting sober is not the same thing as being in recovery. Right. Right. So did he did he ever try to get in recovery? Or was it just stopping the drinking? He discussed it and reached out to someone one or two times, but never followed through. Right. And I'm saying that for yeah. the people listening because mm-hmm. pe- I think people think, oh, yes, you go detox, you get off the, the substance, and then right. that's the point. That doesn't make it better. Yeah. <laughs> right. And sometimes it can make it worse. Right. And um, he, he, in particular, he was ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... it. I can't tell you the number of hours we discussed it. He didn't want to drink. He didn't want that to be his life. He, um, I counseled him as much as I could counsel him. Right. Um, and I talked to him just like I would any other client. I said things that you just, (laughs) you don't think you're going to say to the person that you love, but, um, and he received it. He just didn't know how to apply it and he wouldn't, he wouldn't take the steps to apply the things to help him heal. Mm, that hasn't must have been so hard for you. Very. Yeah. Um, it was, I'm, it, I mean, my, it, I don't even know where to start with that, but it was God. Mm-hmm. I tried to walk away multiple times, and I just felt I, I could not. Mm-hmm. That that's where God wanted me, whether it made sense to anyone else or not. Yeah. So, so what are some ways that that affected you or affects people? I mean, you talked about the enabling. What, how did you enable? Um, he would drink too much at night, and then he would sleep through his alarm and not get up for work. And um, so I would get up and get his clothes ready and have everything ready and try to wake him up and get him dressed and out the door to his job when I had to go to work as well. Mm. Um I do. I did that a lot. That's probably the biggest thing I think that I did. Other than um, I did never say you can't come in this house with no alcohol. You can't. You'll have to find somewhere else to live. I didn't set any boundaries that said you can't do this. Mm. I'm not gonna live like this. Yeah. And do you feel like you should have? Yes. At the end, I, I attempted. Right. But his emotional state was he would have gone and slept in his car and just slept, died in his car. Right. And I, I couldn't um, uphold the boundary. Yeah. I wanted to. And so what would you have needed to do that? I would have had to let him go live in his car. Mm. And if he died in his car, he died in his car. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I mean, we see that a lot with, uh, you know, teenage parents, you know, of a kid who's bringing drugs in the house. And are you willing to set the boundary and then have to move out or sleep in their car? And, and mm-hmm. people aren't. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that's the right thing? I think every situation is different. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can. I don't think one size fits all. Right. And I would agree. I mean, I did, I poured it out. I wouldn't give him money. I made it as difficult as I could make it. 
and that was as much as I could do. Mm -hmm. If you could go back, what, what would you have needed as a person sport wise to make different decisions earlier? I think that part of my journey was wasn't so much about support and having I don't even know how to say what I'm thinking um for me it was more about and I think I put on the talking points that the empathic part because mm-hmm. I could I I have some empathic tendencies, but with him, I could feel everything. I could feel what he felt. Mm-hmm. I would know when I was when I got out of the car to come in after work. I could tell what mood he was in before I came in the house. Like I could read him, and it's like I couldn't. I think separate because I felt that I couldn't separate that. Yeah, and I don't know that anyone. I think support wise, I think it would have helped for people to say even though this doesn't make sense to me, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. You can talk about how mad you are, how anxious you are, how upsetting makes you all you want. And I'm still going to be your friend. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be here. Right. So not shaming you for sticking it out. Right. Right. Cause then you get isolated more because now you know you can't talk to anybody. Right. Or making me feel that I have to defend him in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I did a lot of. Yeah. So tell me about that as a, Somebody with some, you know, you're married to somebody or engaged with somebody in a relationship with somebody who's everybody can see is doing something unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And I would try to point out that's not, that's not all he is because mm-hmm. that's not, that wasn't all he was. He has many good qualities. He does this. He does that. He, you know, I would try to point out all the good things and try to, I guess, make it seem not as bad as it was. Yeah. I mean, I would always, I never said he doesn't have a problem. I never said you're wrong. I would always say, yes, he does do that. Yes, I don't like that. But that's not all he is. Right. And that's really the truth. And, that, and that's for anyone. Alcohol and drugs and that's not all a person is. Right. Well, we started that off saying that's not your identity, <laughs> right? Right. And so I think that's what we're talking about is the nuance of, being in a relationship with somebody and under you, you knew his story, you mm-hmm. knew how he got there to the, to the right. alcoholism. And so it's right. much easier for you to have empathy and stick it out than it is for mm-hmm. people who aren't willing to hear the story. Right. Right. It's much easier for people to, to look at something and want to keep it black and white. Sure. Keep it simple. Like, Oh, well he's doing these behaviors. It's causing you pain. It's causing him harm. Just stop it or get out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, the, that's the easy way to look at it, but it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you don't get to know someone and walk alongside them, then of course it's easy to not have empathy for them because mm-hmm. you're critical. You would never do that. Right. Or you're like, how could he, how could he keep doing this? Well, maybe you should try figuring that out because there's probably an answer. Right. Mm-hmm. Are you really asking how to learn? Or are you asking how, like from an ego perspective of that's ridiculous and I would never, I'm above it. Mm-hmm. And I find that a lot of people mean well who deal with people who struggle with an addiction or trauma responses and they just want them to stop, you know, and they see you getting hurt or somebody getting hurt and and it's as simple as just cut them off and leave. Right. 
but it's not that easy. Right. Especially when you love them and you mm-hmm. see why they got there. You see that they're actually a victim. Right. Of their childhood, of their circumstances, of their history. Mm-hmm. And all those things started really early on. Mm-hmm. You know, there was pain, there was suffering that started, and alcohol happened to be the catalyst to covering all that stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so it's much easier to, to look on and then you know, shame the person who's staying. Right. And I've seen in my own experience in this story, and I've seen it with other stories, you know, they, there are family members that do say, I'm never going to speak to you again. I'm never going to talk to you again. They, they walk away because, and I understand that. I mm-hmm. understand some people, they reach their limit and they can't, they can't do it anymore. But I also saw that doesn't make someone want to stop. Mm-hmm. I've never, I have not experienced a person in the years I worked in the inpatient addiction ward and in my, that my own story, that that made someone stay sober. Yeah. Yeah. I think the answer to so many things, but addiction especially is connection. Mm -hmm. And so when you isolate or cut off, it just fuels the need for the false connection that alcohol or they escape from the fear of being vulnerable or getting known or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes the situation worse. What would you say? um, So how do you not cut off with the person still being damaging or still drinking or still doing whatever? How do you stay in relationship with somebody like that? I think you have to have you have to limit exposure. Mm. Um, I don't think cutting off is the answer, but limiting, um, you have to know that not expect more than what they can give, mm-hmm. um, which is hard. I mean, that's the whole route of accepting this is where they're at and I have to stop wanting them to be something they're not. And then, you know, if it's too much, then you limit, you talk to them once a month. Once every two months, you see them on, you just limit the exposure to that situation. Right. So it's not saying you have to be their best friend and spend all day with them every day and spend time with them. But the boundary still is if you keep drinking, if you keep acting this way, then our, our ability to connect is going to get further and further. Right. So not jumping from fully connected, fully enabling, Mm -hmm. fully in the mix of it to nothing. Yes. Right. So walking that out a bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's harder. Sure. <laughs> it is harder. People don't want to do the hard thing, Brandy. No. Well, it is hard because you're watching this person destroy themselves mm-hmm. and you want so much more for them. It is hard. But at some point you have to understand you're not in control of their life. Yeah. And you can twist yourself up in knots. You can, you can yell and scream and fight and, it's not going to change unless they want it to change. Yeah. And I should rephrase that. It's not even unless they want it to change. It's unless they're willing to take the steps and do the hard work. Mm-hmm. So what kind of anxiety and depression does that feed off onto the family and friends? Um, because I can imagine looking for bottles, trying to figure out when the next disaster is going to happen when mm-hmm. they're going to get fired, when they're going to get in a wreck, when they're mm-hmm. going to get caught <clears throat> has to, you know, bring up a lot of hypervigilance. And, um, I don't think I had any idea how anxious I had the state of anxiety I had been in until he passed away. Mm-hmm. 
and it all was just gone. And um, it a lot of anxiety. You, um, he was also spent a couple of years being suicidal. And so I, I never knew what was going to happen when. Um, did, had a lot of impulsive behaviors, did a lot of things that just, I mean, I just, towards the end, it was just learning I, I, that control piece. I could not control what he did. His behaviors didn't actually have anything to do with how he felt about me or our relationship. And I had to just let a lot of things go. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't love him enough to change his behavior. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And he, it didn't, his behavior didn't mean he loved me any less. I mean, he loved me as much as he could love me. But that, again, had nothing to do with the internal wounds. Yeah, he didn't love himself very much. No, he didn't. He didn't think he deserved anything. So do we think somebody who doesn't love themselves very much can love other people very well? Not. I don't think they can love them in the same way. Right. I think they can love them to the best that they know how. Yeah. And sometimes that's not the same. Mm-hmm. But it's what they know how yep. to do. Yeah, I think that goes back to you making the choice to stay or leave mm-hmm. and not riding in the middle. Right. You know, and it's hard to make that choice and stick with it mm-hmm. or to give an ultimatum or, you know. And so for people listening, you know, I think it's, everybody's on a different journey with this. It might be their son. It might be their husband. It might right. be their mom or dad. Or, right. And so this is one version of it. Yes. But things that I think people are dealing with. And so I would say what would help is community. Mm-hmm. Healthy community. Right. Supportive community. Mm-hmm. Not a community that tells you what you have to do, but a community, like you said, that says, I'm going to walk beside you as you go through this because I'm not in your position. Right. You know, it's not my husband. And people can say all day what they would do in the in the situation, but they don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a Navy SEAL quote that says, uh, uh, when the crap hits the fan, uh, no one, most people don't even know where the fan is. Right. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't say crap, but, yeah. you know, and but that's true. A lot of people love to play, you know, armchair quarterback from, mm-hmm. you know, 50 yards away and say, oh, you should have done this. You thought it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like until you're in it, you act, you don't know what you do. And I will, to speak to that, I will say one reason that a lot of people didn't understand it was that I'm a very hardcore boundary person. Nobody is in my, nobody steps the wrong way, does the wrong thing. I don't allow it. And I allowed it all with him. And I, I can't, we won't get into all of that, but <laughs> that's, that all happened for different reasons. You know, that's meeting young, not knowing what you're doing and not being healthy and Yeah. But you really, truly do not know how you're going to handle a situation until it happens to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've learned that with many different situations. Yeah. So I try not to say, ah, this is what I'll do if that happens. Nope. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. 
So what are some other things that maybe you want to talk about that, you know, you experienced with him that you learned from? Um, you talked about them having, you know, suicidal ideation or, mm-hmm. um, he was extremely depressed off and on, but, and of course the drinking fed that. And, um, for a couple of years, he, he contemplated like, what is, what is the point? What's not just what's my life isn't worth anything. This whole world isn't worth anything. Like, why are we here? What's the purpose? Um, and it, I mean, I think a a lot of people who use probably experience that Mm -hmm. either because of the using itself and being in the state you're in when you use or the, the coming down or, um, it's a hard thing to go through with someone trying to talk through someone and help them decide that there is a reason that they're here, that if they're here, if they, if it was time for them to go, then it would be time for them to go. If you're here, it's not time and that there is a purpose and that you just have to, you have to seek that purpose. You have to look for that purpose. You have to make changes. Um, when you're talking to somebody who's heavily medicated. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So you're trying to have a conversation about emotions and feelings and beliefs and, and these deep things and somebody's, three sheets to the wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to connect. Right. You know, it's hard to have a rational mm-hmm. conversation with somebody drinking, especially alcoholism. Right. So very good point. Cause what I did learn over the years is I stopped having conversations when he was drinking or I would, I would have them with the first drink and then you'd have to stop. I didn't fight with him when he, when he wanted to pick a fight and he'd been drinking I would walk away. Um, I had to learn that. I, I did some physical damage to myself a few times because I got so angry. Um, hitting things. I put my hand through a glass window um, on accident. But I, I slipped my, it cut my wrist and I was like, I can't go to the hospital. They'll think I tried to kill myself when I didn't. I just hit the window too hard um, because I was angry. And so I had to learn that he can't, he can't be rational in right. these situations. So I have to walk away. I have to learn and understand that I can talk until I'm blue in the face. He's not going to get it. I have to wait till he's sober or first drink before his mind is altered. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I would say that's a key piece for anyone is don't, don't try to solve problems when someone's using, don't try to reason with them. Don't try, don't engage in the argument. If you can walk away, then walk away or just don't say anything. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard, but it saves you a lot of energy. What, um, talk to me about the detox cycle. What was that like for um, somebody watching somebody, you know, try to get sober, come off, come back on, come off, come back on. Well, it was scary because I'd worked in 
a hospital where we detox people medically. Right. And he would do it at home by himself while I'm at work. And, you know, it's painful. Um, a person will, you go through a lot of symptoms, um, a lot of nausea, throwing up, sweating. Um, he would talk about how he, his organs would hurt. He could feel from the inside out. It like, I guess that's the detox part. Um, trying to get rid of all of the stuff. Um, he would run fever, would just feel terrible and he would look terrible. Mm Mm-hmm pale and he knows that if he just takes a drink it'll all stop mm-hmm. yeah but he had also drank so much and was drinking so much each time he wanted to detox he was having the same internal feelings as the detox made him have like his organs hurting he could mm-hmm. feel them hurting and he would be like i'm killing myself i have to stop i have to stop and so then he would just cold turkey it and it wasn't very effective. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Um, hopeful and disappointing. I would have hope. Okay, he's we're gonna we're gonna this stay the course the this time. We're yeah. gonna stay the course. He's gonna get through this. And each time, how sick he was during the detox process, I'd say he's never gonna want to feel this again. So this is gonna do it. We're, you know, now I just got to get him to counseling or an AA or to celebrate something. And he never would take that piece. Um, He also believed that, um, and I'm not saying at all that this isn't possible. He didn't understand why um, his faith in Jesus wasn't enough to cure him. Mm. So we had that battle over and over and over. Um, And what would you say about that? I would I would say it's not that it's not enough. I think there are tools that God gave people to help you through this. And it's not your you your faith you struggling with doesn't diminish your faith. You have to do what you have to do have the support you need. I've often told him it's not a, you can't do it on your own. It's not a one man, one person. Um, well, right. Cause that's battle. not actually being right. obedient to faith. Mm-hmm. You know, faith is not just a, a me and God thing. Mm-hmm. Like I believe in Jesus. Right. And so therefore all this is going to go away. Right. You know, there's a lot of chemistry that happens. That's not character. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can pray and you can ask God to take it. And that can happen. Absolutely. It can. But it's the smaller percentage of chance that that's going to be the thing, right? Yes. You know, the silver bullet. Oh, I I prayed and gave my life to Jesus. And now Mm -hmm. I never want to watch porn again or I never want to drink again or I never want to, you know, smoke again Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. That -hmm. happens. Right. But for the larger group of us, you know, there's a, there's a brokenness in our bodies and in our brains and in our Mm -hmm. neuro pathways and in our dopamine and serotonin levels and, and that has to change over time mm-hmm. and um, and won't fully change until Jesus returns and restores us to what we were intended to be. Right. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I think you can have faith in Jesus and he can re- redeem and restore all things, mm-hmm. certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might look different. The timeline looks different for everybody. Right. And that, that would go from 
well, every single person has a different history, a different mm-hmm. code, a different resiliency, a different mm-hmm. body type, a different uh, you know epigenetic DNA, RNA code. Mm-hmm. And so like depending on all of that depends on what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's messy. It but yeah, I think people have a really hard time with that as Christians. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I do. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, hold on. I, I'm praying. I'm believing in this. I do right. know God is good. I want him to be my all mm-hmm. in all. You know, right. you sing worship songs and say, I give you everything. Mm-hmm. And then right. you're like, but then I want this back. Mm-hmm. Right. I want my anger back. I want my control back. I want my mm-hmm. my usages back, whatever the thing is, then my coping back. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, well, you, you yelled today, so you don't believe in Jesus? Right? It's like, that's not the guarantee. It's not perfection that faith gives you. Yeah. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's hard for people... When they see such an overt mm-hmm. sin, mm-hmm. they go, I'm still drinking, you right. know, I'm still going and get plastered. I know this is bad, but I believe in Jesus. Right. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a faith issue, mm-hmm. but at the same time, no, even uh, yeah. if you believe and pray and do it all, it doesn't mean you're not going to have sin in your life. Right. And it doesn't mean that, I mean, Jesus is going to be there with you through it when you... Well, either way, whether you make the choice to take the steps to recover or not. But the steps of recovery, he's what gives you the strength to do it. Right. And so it's not that he's not healing you. He's just not instantly healing you. Mm. But it's still healing. And I think in my situation, he was looking for the instant. Yeah. And yeah, that isn't the road that God wanted. God wanted the healing. The And... He couldn't choose it. Right. So. Mm-hmm. He would be so close and he would get it. He would seem to get it. And then the next day, it's like never had the conversations. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think those are the hard mysteries that we can't define and, and mm-hmm. truly make sense of. Mm-hmm. You know, that we, we, we want as humans to be like, well, hold on. How does this faith thing work? Yeah. You know, let's define it so I can make sure I never end up in that situation or that scenario or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Because as you're, as, you're, as you're saying it, you know, my brain goes, well, hold on. Like, there is a spectrum, right? Because we do bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And so what are some fruits in his life that you, outside of just the alcohol that you saw that let him let you know that he was, a, you know, really wanting to stop but couldn't? Or that he really did love, you know, did have faith in Jesus? Um. Oh, he read his Bible all the time, prayed all the time. We prayed together. Um, um, Was he kind? For the most part, yeah. He had, yeah, he was a kind person. He was a, um, he was a giving person. Um, There were many times where we both were financially struggling and, um, he he would give away his money. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody needed twenty dollars, a hundred dollars, they couldn't you know pay a bill or they needed food. He would take it out of his pocket and give it to him when that was supposed to be to pay something. Yeah, because I didn't have enough money. Right. <laughs> you know, would be like okay. Um, he loved to cook for people. If you didn't have food, he would cook you meals and bring them to you. Um, we would invite people into our home 
for him to cook for them when they were down and out. Um, he liked he liked to help people. Um, those were kind of the only ways he really knew how was to either give them money or cook for them. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the question? What were the fruits? <laughs> I'm like, what are we doing? Well, I'm saying, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, what are, what he are the... Was, um, I say this because there mm-hmm. are people, you know, I encourage people right. that mm-hmm. all we can see is the alcohol abuse. Right. Right. You know, and, and that's not them. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, when they're drunk. Yeah. And they're high. Mm-hmm. That's not who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's who they are from a theological perspective in the sense that we're all sinners and we're all broken. Mm-hmm. But they're not clear headed thinking attuned mm-hmm. with what they really want and what their heart's stirring to. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only catch that window when they're not using. And then once they use so long without sobriety, so much of it is just the addiction. Right. And so I'm asking, you know, mm-hmm. what are some ways that people can look to their significant others if they're using and see past the, the abuse and see mm-hmm. to who they are? Because um, I think that gives hope. Right. For eternity, maybe not this life. Mm-hmm. Um. the way they talk to people, you know, um, I think the way you especially talk to like people, well, say people you don't know, like if you can be kind and polite, I think that shows, um, you know, some people are just not nice people. Mm -hmm. Um, but if they have the ability to be nice, to hold conversations, to talk to people, um, Look at their behavior when they're not drinking. Do they help around the house? Do they do chores? Do they take care of their responsibilities? Mm-hmm. Um, do they pay their bills? Do they, um, you know, if it's a family, do they show up for kids' events? Do they, you know, the, all of those things are important things. Um It's a lot. It's a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to process, and for people to, you know, it's 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 extremely nuanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, in thinking about my situation specifically, it, it it's difficult to pinpoint those things because, and this is going to make it sound bad. He put on a front for everyone, so when he wasn't drinking, he still was tough guy um you know funny passionate very loud you always knew when he was in a room um but he only showed that tender giving side the sweet parts of him only a handful of people got to see Mm -hmm. so like i'm trying to think like what are the things that everyone would see in someone versus what your intimate circle would see yeah um because when it was just he and I, it was long, deep conversations. You know, he would clean the house. He would he would do all the stuff while I was at work because he was at home not working. Or when he was off, he would help when, um, you know, he took care of his bills. He, 
he did all the things that he needed to do to look like he was functioning. Mm -hmm. Even though emotionally he wasn't really functioning well. Right. So what are some ways that you can, for people listening to this that are, have somebody that they're living with that are struggling with alcohol, what are kind of, what are the ways that the advice you would give them to maybe either do better what you did now that you know, um, or, um, ways that they can just survive this season? Um, think they definitely have to have someone they can talk to. Whether whether they have, I would say they need to be in counseling. They need something that helps them get through the weekly struggles. I mean, it's daily struggles, but you typically don't go to counseling every day. So mm-hmm. someone you can talk to to let it out. Um, I would say you have to you have to pray and you have to look inwardly within yourself and begin to understand that it's not about you and I think there are situations where I mean, people have to decide it. Can I do this? Can I not do this? Mm-hmm. And if you decide this is the road, then you have to know Jesus is going to walk through it with you. He's going to give you the strength if that's where he says he wants you to be. Mm-hmm. If he releases you, then that's a different story. Yeah. Um, I think it's you have to take it day by day. You can't look at the big picture or it's overwhelming. You have to have tools to help you manage your own thoughts and feelings. Um, you have to do things to take care of you because no one else is going to in that situation. Mm-hmm. So you have to do, and that looks different for everyone, but um, you have to figure out what helps you feel comforted, what what brings you some peace in the midst of it? Yeah. I don't know if that, did that answer the question? No, it answered the questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, you're just saying people, there's a lot of work that goes into it that you have to stay on top of. And and the thing about some of those answers is there's no, I can't give you a specific of how to get to those things. It's a, it's work. Yeah. It's a journey you have to go on. Um, I mean, I did a lot of stuff. Not only was I in counseling for years, but um, I read books and I did Bible studies that were all geared around that type of, well, not just that type, about caring for me, Mm -hmm. about um, figuring out how to look at things from God's perspective. I did a lot of praying. I did a lot... I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of things that kept me afloat. Yeah. Had I not had those things, I I have no idea right. what that road would have looked like. Yes, yeah, I, I, I tend to think, you know, people definitely need um, 
support from other people outside of, you know, themselves. And we, we tend to just isolate and not want to tell anybody because of a lot of the things you talked about today, mm-hmm. um, because we don't talk about it enough. So I really appreciate you being vulnerable in it. I know it's hard to talk about. I know that, like you said, it's nuanced and it's your story. And, you know, we could talk for four hours and 10 hours on you know the details of all of it. But I think what I want for people to hear when I hear in your story is it's just kind of chaotic and yes. it's up and down and constant and back and forth. And, you know, ultimately people don't choose to become alcoholics and choose to become addicts, right. you know? Right. Um, and so if we're in their life, we can love them. And sometimes that has to be from a distance. We can be connected to people from a distance with boundaries. Mm-hmm. They may have to sleep in their car. They may have to lose their job. You may have to say no. Mm-hmm. You can do that without being mean and bitter if you take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? That you can say no and you can say, I love you and this hurts, but I'm going to go to therapy and process that. And I'm going to come back because I have the proper perspective of what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. You're not capable of loving me how I deserve, right? That That's not the dream that mm-hmm. any of us, you right. know, stand before each other at the altar and say, I do. I also know you're an alcoholic. I know you're going to struggle with this. I know you're going to be lazy. I know you're going to be angry. I know you're going to be selfish. I know you're going to be controlling. None of us sign up at, you know, when we say I do to those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes we do, but for the most part, we don't know what that's going to look like until it plays out. Right. <clears throat> and it's for better or worse sickness and health. And so I think a lot of times because of the lack of support, the lack of awareness, the lack of, uh, knowledge and and perspective you know things end really quickly which only make it worse for both people we bring those into the next relationship and now we have really rigid boundaries for somebody or really you know triggering situations for the next relationship any alcohol is off the table anything is a you know is a warning sign when that may or may not be the case mm-hmm. and so yeah i think getting into therapy having you know i don't know if you did al-anon or experienced any of that but What's your thoughts on... I did... Um, it was Al-Anon. I did do that for a while. I did a... Um, I went to a codependent group that was being led through a church and read and worked the workbook of the codependent no more. And I did... I went to Al-Anon groups for not a really long time, but I did... Well, I did. I went long enough. I went to step five. Hmm. And then I don't know, I don't even remember what happened, but I didn't go back. Right. Um, I didn't continue it. Um, so I think that it, it was a good platform where I went. Right. Um, I don't know if we even ha- still have al groups meeting in this area, but... Um, yeah, they do. I think it, there's yeah. a couple of churches that have them on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was, it was very helpful and... Um, totally forgot about that um i remember feeling very um seen and heard and like you know a whole room of people are dealing with the same things yeah we tend to think we're uniquely broken Mm -hmm. you know that i'm the Mm -hmm. only one who does this Mm -hmm. you have so much shame about these secret things and the secret ways in which our relationships are and our enabling and our anxiety and our fears and all, all these symptoms that have been brought on by just trying to be in a relationship with somebody struggling with an addiction. Mm-hmm. And then we blame ourselves for all those and we think they're unique to us. And then you mm-hmm. get in a group and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is the same thing for everybody. Right. <laughs> you know that we're not that unique. Mm-hmm. 
And I think there's a pro and a con to that. We actually want to be unique. And it's mm-hmm. kind of this self-survival thing of like, oh, I'm, I'm this special person. And you are. But also, like, the way it plays out is not that unique. Right. And yeah. seeing that mm-hmm. in other people in groups and in families and being vulnerable is, is hard. But the power of vulnerability is that then people share with you their same things. And you start seeing yourself not in this little isolated silo, but a, mm-hmm. as a part of a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And you start externalizing the alcoholism and the addiction and the problem and mm-hmm. go, oh, that's not, that doesn't define me. That's not, it yeah. doesn't even define the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where I think freedom comes in is when we say our identities in Christ, you know, and that Jesus can, can heal us and bring us to freedom. It's in that it's going, well, none of this is about me. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and if you can sit in that, you find peace. It doesn't mean it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's easy, mm-hmm. but you know, at the end of the day that like my worth and value is found in the cross and not found in mm-hmm. how this is affecting me or how I've done with it or whether I've done it perfectly or whether I screwed it up or, you know, whatever. And then people farther down the road than you say that to you in a group setting. And you're like, Oh, that feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I definitely do think that's when, when I did that group and I went to Al-Anon was probably in when I was first figuring out he's, he's an alcoholic and mm-hmm. the things that I'm doing are hurting me and him. Yeah. Like that's where I started figuring out this is real. Yeah. You know, this isn't. (laughs) And then, you know, just another piece I wanted to throw out there was just in the midst of telling all of this, just in that relationship, there was tons of laughter and fun. So like, you can be in relationship with someone, whether it's romantic, family, and there's going to be good times and bad times. It's figuring out how to make the best of the good times mm-hmm. so that it doesn't feel like you wasted time or yeah. that you lost time or you didn't live. Um, I can definitely say that we had just as much fun as we had bad. Yeah. And so it, that's part of how I was able to stay. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah. And and I'd say for people who can't stay, I don't think they should beat themselves up either. Absolutely. No, not at all. You know, I think everybody's situation's different and, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't measure it. Oh, well he struggled with alcoholism and I stayed with him and he didn't. I mean, it's like, well, that depends on what they did and the boundaries and the abuse and the level of toxicity and all those kind of things. Absolutely. I totally agree. But I I think you can't find that filter isolated in your bedroom. No. Right. You you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't figure that out on your own. You have to have other people who love the Lord and can see you Mm -hmm. clearly and rightly. Um, And those are, I think going back to counseling, those are the, that's the reason therapy works is like, you have somebody that's there for you that can support you. That's non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. We should have more of that in the church, mm-hmm. but unfortunately we don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I told somebody the other day and I think the church is the answer. It's the root for all things. We just happen to be a kind of secondary option because we sometimes don't have enough healthy people that understand addiction and mm-hmm. trauma and psychology on right. church staffs to be able to see it properly. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and, and they, you know, that conversation of is Jesus enough? Like sometimes people throw that around lightly and 
that causes more trauma and more shame and you know right. <laughs> but it's very nuanced mm-hmm. it is you know jesus is enough he's all you need but what's that mean well the whole jesus is the holy spirit which is in each one of us and so like when we're connected with other people and they're a christian and they believe what we believe and they're loving on us with the power of the holy spirit then you are getting jesus mm-hmm. you know he's not this floating around you just grab him out of the air and then he's going to help you get over alcoholism you know, it's a, it's a person, it's a relationship and mm-hmm. we're made in the image of God to be, you know, Jesus says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so we have to be, you know, open and honest and, and authentic and in community to be able to, to do that together, to see that healing happen. It's not going to happen isolated in your room praying. It right. can. Right. No, I agree. But it's less likely. Mm-hmm. And so if you're out there and you're struggling and you feel alone and you feel isolated and you feel like the only one, even us therapists have histories and stories of these things. And, and it, it's what usually brings us to being counselors. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it can be really toxic if you don't deal with it. Right. You know, there's a, there's people out there in all professions mm-hmm. doing their profession very poorly because of their history and they have good intentions. They went into it for some reasons, but they never really unpacked their past and integrated it into their present. Mm-hmm. And that, at some point blows up. And so I'm really proud of you, Brandy, for, you know, doing the work and for getting the help and being in therapy as a therapist. I know it's really hard for us to be honest because people want you to be perfect and not have any problems and give them all the answers. And, and, you know, our histories are a mess too. And Mm -hmm. I wouldn't trade it any other way because it shapes us into who we are. Right. I don't want to do it again. No, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to make, you know, make those choices again. Mm So I am extremely proud of you for your vulnerability today and just tell a little bit of your story and trying to help people see that, you know, hopefully this alleviates their shame and goes, okay, me too. Now what? Well, now what is go get some help. Right. And I would say it's, it's not quick. I mean, I started therapy talking about that particular relationship in the early 2000s. Right. And I still go sometimes and talk about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's ongoing. Yeah. There was a couple of ladies a long time. <laughs> in the waiting room earlier and they were, they knew each other. So they were talking, uh, and they were like, Oh, I didn't know you came here. And they were kind of laughing and, and, uh, I had walked through or something. And one of them said something to me and I said, yeah, I've been doing therapy for 20 years. So I'm, you know, I can't get out of it now right. because it, you, it's not a, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, Oh, it, we're in crisis. And so now we go to therapy. It can be a, it's a lifelong process of having somebody. But it doesn't just stop there. You want to have other people in your life, other other friends, other uh, community members who are loving on you, supporting you, all that. Right. Well, cool. Any closing okay. thoughts? You know, I just want to say um, to the alcoholic addict listening, you're more than you're you're more than this struggle, and to the family member, the loved one living in that situation that um, there is support, that the things you're feeling are not bad or wrong and you don't have to carry it alone. There are there are people that want to come beside you and try to help you walk through it. Mm-hmm whether that's a counselor or, or friends or it's, it's just finding you have to find the people. Yeah. And don't give up searching for those people because they're few and far between, but they're there mm-hmm. and you can trust that the Holy spirit is, is already 
shaping those people to cross your path and to connect with you. And, and he's not leaving you astray. He's, he's not, God is not missing any of it. He's not missing any of the sin and the brokenness and the mistakes. And he's, he's going to make those good. And he can turn those, you know, that ash to beauty. And he's also not missing your, your pleas and your prayers and your cries for help. And, you know, he's in the process of rescuing and redeeming. So yeah, I appreciate that. That's a good encouragement. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. I know this was a deep and hard one, but um, we hope it's helpful to people. We hope that, you know, it just shows realness and rawness of a life of, you know, mental health and, and issues with alcoholism and that it's it's not pretty. It's not uh, succinct. You can't just make it a, this little, oh, here's what you do. A plus B equals C. But at the same time, there are some uh, there's some real things you can do to help yourself and some real experiences that can make things better. So. Uh, Listen, subscribe, follow, whatever the things are you do. Uh, God bless you and have a good week.